Join the party and spirits are playing in your city. God, we're so excited. Eric will be wearing his DMing glove the entire trip. I'm both worried and excited. Seven cities, 10 days at the end of March 2024. Your two favorite podcasts, Join the Party and Spirits, are performing live. We're playing games, rolling dice, making monsters, and a whole lot more. So come see us in Seattle at the Hereafter on March 21st. Minneapolis at Granada on March 22nd. Chicago at Reggie's on March 24th. Boston at the Rockwell on March 25th, New York City at Littlefield March 26th, Philly at City Winery March 27th, and D.C. at Atlas Brewworks on March 28th. Get your tickets right now at jointhepartypod.com slash live. That's jointhepartypod.com slash live. There you can see all the ticket links and find the city that works for you. When you're rolling the bones, your future is looking good. Join us. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 92, Fake Lore with David Reinstrom. Oh, I love it, David. I love David with all my heart. Me too. He is one of our best, best pod pals and uh, really excellent on Twitter. You should follow him at Icarus Floats. Also a confirmed fake king. He is absolutely a fake king and don't let him tell you otherwise. No, don't let him. And members of the Sealy High Court uh, who definitely don't like seduce humans and keep them in their bower forever. Wink. Who would those be? That would be our new patrons, Sam, Emily, Ryan, Serenity, Dana, Jess, and Bunny. And those like high court officials who you look at their outfits and you're like, damn, that would be our supporting producer level patrons. Philip, Julie, Christina, Josh, Eeyore, Amara, Ella, Ashley Marie, Neil, Jessica, Maria, Ryan, Phil Fresh, and Deborah. You all have the best outfits made of only the finest spider silk and fallen leaves and whatnot. Man, I, I want to rock that aesthetic so bad. If we, for whatever reason, Julia, ever get invited to the Met Ball, I'm just saying it's not impossible. Uh, we definitely should dress like that. Um, yes. Doesn't matter what the theme is. We're just going to be fae ladies and just do it up. And we would definitely bring as our dates our legend-level patrons. Cassie, Sandra, Audra, Mercedes, Jack Marie, and Leanne. <sighs> You all can come to the Met Ball with us and try to seduce all of the the fancy, fancy celebrities that are there. We didn't uh, plan to segue, but my recommendation for this week is actually fairy related. It's The Changeling by Victor Laval. I'm pretty sure that either Julia or a Spirits listener recommended this to me. It is a novel. It is some serious shit, y'all. It gets really real. It genuinely kept me up at night, but it is so good and completely like urban setting fairy and fae related stuff like i could not love it anymore it definitely wasn't me because i think that sounds amazing but i have not read it yet i'm gonna check it oh, out. oh my dude just like set aside two days where you don't have to be available to anyone or thing because your heart is going to be completely invested in the story okay all right that sounds scary but i'm into it and if you you know spend those two days reading a really good book and you let's say have a staycation week like i'm doing right now and you're like huh i have some time i want to i don't know learn some stuff like netflix whatever i run out of things what have i learned 
the best place to do that would be Skillshare, our sponsor for this week. At Skillshare.com slash spirits, you can get two months of premium membership for 99 cents. And we'll tell you a little bit more about the class that we really enjoyed this week during our refill. And our last bit of housekeeping for this episode would be that we got a P.O. box, y'all. Yo! Yo! We're going to be like like that show on PBS that I want to call Zabumafu but wasn't with all the millennial children who's like P.O. Box 02134, send it to Zoom. Zoom. I got there by the end of the jingle. Okay. Zoom. Good. I'm so glad. Zabumafu was the one with the, the, the lemur. Oh, yeah. yeah. That friend of the show, Lucy, uh, live blogged her experience watching Zabumafu and it was perhaps the best thing I've ever read in Amazing. my life. So good. Anyway, P.O. Box. Yes, you can now send us physical stuff. Several of you have, and it really makes our day. But now there is a P.O. Box for everyone's enjoyment. You can send anything you want to Multitude, P.O. Box 3241, Astoria, New York, 11103. And it has to be addressed to Multitude, so you can draw a little martini glass or write spirits somewhere else on the envelope or the package. Um, But that information, as well as a way to email us your urban legends, is at spiritspodcast.com slash contact. Yeah, send us your stories. We love your stories. All right. Well, now I think it is time to hear some stories that may or may not be true. They're mostly not true. From our good, good friend in Spears Podcast, Episode 92, Fake Lore with David Rydstrom. We are delighted to be joined by David Reinstrom, our friend, the pod father, <laughs> one of just our first and favorite podcast friends. Howdy. 100%. Hey, what's Thank up? Thank you so much. Hey, folks. Hi, bud. Hey, bud. It's uh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. You're one of those people that we've referenced on the show before. And so to us, it makes sense since you're like a person in our life. But I'm glad that people can hear from from the source, from the mouth of the person. It's true. I've had two beers. Uh, How are you? <laughs> and I just got off work, so I am ludicrously sober. Um, there we go. But yeah, I want to challenge the listeners to guess how old I am since Amanda thought I was old enough to be her dad. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I really just, did. Just... I really did, buddy. There's no, oh, man. there's no, no nothing else. <laughs> there's how, no if ends or just buts. just numbers. Give me a number, Amanda. How old did you think I was? Like fifty. Fifty. Like fifty-five. I yeah. said late thirties, early forties. <laughs> not not from your face, to be clear. Oh, all right. Oh. I just it was just an impression. No, no, no. I had never seen a picture of you. That's why oh, when I was right. like, oh, you're a what? Oh no, just your your like Twitter avatar, which is a drawing of a person, right. mm-hmm. and just. I mean, it, you'd seemed quite like institutional to me. Like, oh, this guy like has an actual job and like knows what he's talking about and is very nice and knows a lot of things about food. And yeah, you seemed like you had your shit together. So Amanda just Precisely. immediately thought adult. And we were like, we're 24. I don't know what's happening. Sure. And of course, we met and you quickly discovered I had my shit together as much or as little as anyone else does or doesn't. You absolutely. That is true. And also managed to uh, beatbox the Raven um, oh. Under my recitation as a mic check, Such which a good was moment. probably top five experience of my life. Certainly one of my proudest moments. Uh, I used oh, to thanks, so so I I used to freelance, uh, not freelance. I used to freestyle rap um, on top of a parking garage when I was in college. Uh, there was like a yes. crew of five or six um, like slam poets and improvisers, and we would get together every couple weeks at night and just trade trade lines for like half an hour 45 minutes see this david this is the kind of let's just let's just pause and notice this is the kind of story that makes me be like yeah this guy must be 50 because you have so many stories you've enough stories for like two lifetimes thank you um 
the but the name I used to and in as much as I was an MC because I wasn't right but like the name that I would rap under when we were in that little circle was D20 yeah because it was a joke on D12 <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. I love you, David. I love you. See, Julia, this is the feeling that we had when we joined Drama Club in eighth grade, yep. and we were like, oh, good. Here are the people. Here are my people. Podcasting, podcasting is theater club for adults. I, yeah. I, I must have sent you one of those, one of my high school raps, right? The antelope hunting thing? The text of it. Yeah. Yes, I have gotten. That's right. The, college was fun too, but I didn't. We didn't have any fun. Like all the all those raps were like pretty ephemeral. I don't remember ri- having written any of them down, or certainly not recorded any of them, because I became certainly more aware of how bad I was. But anyway, um, live and learn. Live and too learn. Late now. Yeah, that's one of the many stories on my album, David Reinstrom, raconteur. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, it's a really good example of how we construct our own narratives. Sure. How we good decide this is a how we segue. are presented to the world, how the world understands us, and how we're really able to constantly rewrite the past by deciding which parts of it and how to tell it. Yeah. So today I want to talk to you, talk with you about fake lore. Um, and the idea behind fake lore, this is a, the term um, was invented in the, the 50s by a professor named Richard Dorson, uh, came up with the term in like 1954 or something. And he defines it approximately as fake lore is this manufactured lesson. Uh, sorry, let me take that again. Uh, fake lore is a manufactured... We're buzzed. Huh? It's late. Uh, this is spirits. It's fine. I spent, I spent <laughs> all day... Wrangling with the content management system at work, and Yikes. I'm I'm a, I'm a little pool of melted butter, um, but I'm back. Adorable. Uh, so fake lore is a manufactured legend. It's presented as if it were real, uh, and it's really anything that purports to come from a previous tradition, but is in fact a contemporary fiction. Um, so similar to some of the things that um that Eric came up with just sort of on his own during the fake mm-hmm. or folklore game. Oh sorry, Charles the Gamesman. Charles um, the Gamesman. I don't know who Eric is. I don't know who Eric is. <laughs> that 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 dashing fellow Charles, however. Mm-hmm. Um have either of you ever seen the the Jimmy Stewart John Wayne movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? No. no. I I've heard of it, which doesn't help me in this situation. So I'm going to spoil it for you in the interest of saying something Go for it. that will, I, I hope, serve as a through line for this conversation, which is that Jimmy Stewart plays um, a, a lawyer uh, who decides he's going to bring order to this town um, because it's beset by this villain named Liberty Valance who just beats up whoever he wants, takes money from people, uh, just exercises a reign of terror over the land. Um, I love him. And Tom Donovan, who is played by um, John Wayne, is kind of this hard-bitten um, rancher. And what ends up happening is that Jimmy Stewart's character kills Liberty Valance in a gunfight, or appears to. What actually happened is that John Wayne's character shot him from a an adjoining alleyway. Uh, because, oh. yeah, uh because Jimmy Stewart's character was a terrible shot and a greenhorn from back east and a lawyer and not like a gunfighter. 
Um, but he kills Liberty Valance in a in a in a duel because he calls him out and he's like, I I stand for decency and you, you know you're a big old bully and uh, he kills him, um, and then goes on to have this long career in politics, uh, and he's being interviewed throughout the you know at the end of the film by this journalist who wants to get the whole story like how did you rise to national prominence you know. Senator, you're the man that shot Liberty Valance. And Jimmy Stewart finally comes clean and says, I'm, I'm not. It was Donovan the whole time. It was John Wayne's character. Uh, I'm a fraud. Um, and he finishes the interview and the reporter balls up his notes and throws them into the fireplace. And Jimmy Stewart's character says, what, what are you doing? Why are you throwing out those notes? Uh, and the reporter says, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Mm. And I feel like that ethos kind of undergirds a lot of what fake lore is about. Um, because a lot of a lot of the tall tale figures that we have, and most of them are associated with various industries in the United States. Um, you know, so so uh, Alfred Bulltop Stormalong, Joe Magarach, uh, Paul Bunyan. Um, all of these people are associated with different industries in the United States. And indeed, um, Paul Bunyan, though his story may have originally come out of lumberyard work gangs in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was the product of one guy, uh, this Californian copywriter named William Loghead, um, who brought him to prominence in like the early 1920s. Um, in a series of pamphlets for the Red River Lumber Company of Westwood, California. Mm. So Capitalism, was... man, that insidious source of stories. Right. So so um, Dorson defined... So I should say who Richard Dorson was. He was... Um, he's not just some rando. He was the first director of the Indiana University Folklore Center. Um and I think he was the director of that department from its founding in like 1963 until he died in, uh, I think, the 80s. Um, and he is famous for having introduced, I mean, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, he devoted a lot of his life to just attacking um, the root of Paul Bunyan stories. Uh, but he's, he's famous for having introduced to us the word fake lore and also the term mm. urban myth. Ooh, he's that's my one favorite of, person. That's that's one of his. Man, I, it seems to me that like the 60s through the very early 90s in academia was such a time of someone being like, hey, I don't know if you've noticed this thing before, but here's just a word for it. <laughs> and then that's what we use forevermore, uh, whether it's like biographical criticism, you know, or like gender being a spectrum or, or whatever. Um, I'm sort of jealous because I feel like I, I, I want to name things, right. but it feels like all the things have been named. Let me see you gotta if, discover new things, I... then you get to name them. It's true. Okay, so here's here's what he wrote um, in 1922. So yeah, so there were a bunch of ads, and they were all kind of collected in this one volume by Loghead, um, and he kind of wrapped it all up in this idea that oh yeah, there's this mythical lumberman, you know, this lumberjack that invented lumbering. Um, no, don't walk away. Hold on. Huh? <laughs> I got, I got a good story for you. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. just hear me out. <laughs> Go with me. 
Uh, and he works for us now. So he, Paul Bunyan came to Westwood, California in 1913 at the suggestion of some of the most prominent loggers and lumbermen in the country. When the Red River Company announced their when the Red River Lumber Company announced their plans for opening up their forests of sugar pine and California white pine, friendly advisors shook their heads and said, "Better send for sugar pine." Sounds like such a like bad drug name. Sugar pine, honey, but <laughs> really. <laughs> Yes. Loghead tries throughout his book to situate the Bunyan myth in a in a past before himself. Um but it's it's hard to say how much of this was was legend that like predated his own his own creation. Like how much of this came from people having told these stories before he started making them popular? Cuz it had already become right. he'd kind of created a meme. Uh, and so then, you know, 15, 20 years later, after he had made it popular, made Paul Bunyan popular, this symbol of, you know, um, the American lumbering industry, um, he went around and he asked people like, oh, what did you know about eh, about Bunyan? And so here's here's something from um, Esther Shepard at the Department of English at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Um, this is a story about Paul's babyhood. Quote, Paul Bunyan was born in Maine. When three weeks old, he rolled around so much in his sleep that he destroyed four square miles of standing timber. Then they built a floating cradle oh. for him and anchored it off Eastport. When Paul rocked in his cradle, it caused a 75-foot tide in the Bay of Fundy, and several villages were washed away. He couldn't be wakened, however, until the British Navy was called out and fired broadsides for seven hours. When Paul stepped out of his cradle, he sank seven warships, and the British government seized his cradle and used the timber to build seven more. That saved Nova Scotia from becoming an island, but the tides in the Bay of Fundy haven't subsided yet. Wow. I mean, points for creativity and extremity. Right. So so this all falls into a category of stories that we call tall tales. Uh, and and there are folkloric characters and there are fake loric characters. Um, there are some people that are actually real Right. Uh, so let me let me go to my list. Who are my list? Yeah. So there are there are real people, real historical figures that oral history is kind of embellished. So Johnny Appleseed, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Mike Mike Fink, John Henry, Calamity Jane, Molly Pitcher, and Nat Love. These are all real people around whom this like shellacked veneer of legend has built up. Um, but then there's there's other people. Like Pecos Bill, Magarak, uh, Alfred Bultock Stormalong, and Paul Bunyan, that are just probably just inventions and twentieth century inventions at that. Right. But the question is, like, does it really friggin' matter? Like, does it does it matter that they're fake? I think is the the question. Uh, Dorson would argue that they at least deserve to be considered separately, part of separate traditions. He, he was concerned that this commercialization of folklore was diluting its impact kind of kind of in the way that people that really love Hans Christian Andersen stories get a little salty when they get disnified right mm -hmm. right all the all the blood and guts and misery gets gets yanked out of it I think I would argue that so on on the one hand it's pretty easy to say like okay well in one hand myths are invented right with the fake lore aspect of things and then there's this other class of myths that are somehow true or taken from reality or lived experience mm -hmm. and propagated. But I would argue that like 
t- like myth telling is myth making. Like there isn't much of a difference between the stories that we choose to invent and propagate and the stories that we choose to retell. Like it still passes through this kind of human and societal filter of like being somehow compelling, important, worth retelling. And in the telling, they they become something greater. So whether the source material is you know, a person that you saw planting an orchard in your hometown or, you know, something that you read in a comic book or that, you know, a TV commercial told you. Um, the the resonance is like with the listener and the, the you know, reteller and their experience and, and less in the like origin. I think that's my thesis. Sure. I think, and I would need to study, I'm not a folklorist. Like, uh, I love this stuff, but it's not, it's not my, my academic briar patch as it were um i think he would argue that because a lot of these stories that he called fake lore emerged from advertising and were literally designed to sell products that they they carry along with them nasty messages um or at least the stink of capital yeah i i think in my mind where you draw the line is stories that are being told because they have some truth to them or they teach a lesson or something like that but stories that are propagated solely to like sell a product is kind of where you have to draw the line between folklore and fake lore mm-hmm. and uh it's it's kind of like in the same vein as like Denny's is like on point with memes, but I'm not going to start telling Denny's stuff as urban legends because I know that Denny's is just trying to sell me pancakes. Yeah, and and I guess my thought would be like if in 40 years people are still talking about Denny's memes alongside like Vine, <laughs> uh, then I would be like, hey, like Denny's has earned a place in our culture and that was earned for a reason. And even though it was initially created to like sell lumber or in this case pancakes or whatever, you know, the fact that it still exists is significant. So I am all for the like academic discussion and study of the origins of these things and like parsing things into different categories in order to better understand them. Um, so on that front, like completely agree. Uh, but I also like still think that we should talk about Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan side by side because these are still things that are in the popular consciousness, you know, a hundred years later. Yeah, I mean, sure, I, I think, but you got to keep intention in mind is yeah. the point of it. I think I think it's basically impossible to divorce American culture from the impact of these fake loric sure. characters. You know, um, if you if you ever drive through the North Woods of the Upper Midwest, you know, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you're gonna see a lot of Paul Bunyan stuff. Just like a lot of men in in plaid standing next to blue oxen, like there's just statues throughout. Um, Paul Bunyan was the logo of the Red River Lumber Company. In fact, it's it's weird because he looks nothing like what modern depictions of him look like. He kind of has a weird, like rat whisker mustache, <laughs> and a and a dumb hat. Was that the image that you <laughs> sent my us plane. Uh, before we re- before we uh, recorded? Yeah, that's the one. Oh yeah, that was quite a mustache. That's, I will I will link it for our listeners, but oof boy. Yeah. Staking my claim there. Like that I'm just gonna that's my take. That is not a that's not a good look. Um and I, I think that as as the myth matured, he definitely got a little sexier. Anyway, the, the As point they of this, usually do. <laughs> <laughs> um so I have brought along uh and this does not really help 
the narrative that I'm not an old man, but in my previous life, uh, I used to make educational card games. Um, before before I started working for uh, an ed tech nonprofit, um, I used to work for an educational uh, game company called Left Side Right Side Games. And one <laughs> of the games that we made, the last one that I published with that company was called Hit or Myth, because I'm Ooh, a bad so man. And yes, I think the puns didn't help with the whole age uh, scansion. Mm-hmm. Um, the so the the game is divided up into four chunks. There's an American mythology one. There's a Norse mythology section, Egyptian and Greco-Roman. Um, the Norse section was called Norse Back to Health. Uh, the yes. Egyptian one was Mummy is the word. Uh. Um, and all of them had like different conversation starters. So the Egyptian one. Uh, no, was... I'm sorry. You have to. You have to tell us the Greco-Roman one if you remember it. <laughs> uh, Freaks and Greeks. Oh uh, my god! Yes, best friends. And hitter. And the American one was how the West was fun, which I later discovered <laughs> is an Olsen twins comedy. It is. Oh, it sure it is, David. Is. We could have told you that. <laughs> and this is why people need editors. Mm-hmm. You gotta have that kind of copy check. <laughs> I know it's one of my one of my like number one podcast uh, how to tips is like have a team mostly because you can't tell if your own jokes are funny. So like you really need someone there to mm-hmm. tell you when they are or are not. Right. So th- so each so every everything had a primary question, a primary challenge, a bonus question, and a conversation started to get folks talking round the dinner table. Sure. Um, Aw. The Egyptian one was called food for thought. <laughs> The uh, Norse one was called For Your Edification. Yes. The Western one was called Chuckwagon Chatter, and I don't remember what the Greek one is off the off the top of my head. Ah, oh, that's a shame. Nope, I do. <laughs> it was Lost in the Blabyrinth. Oh, my God. Very good. This really exposes, I think, two mysteries. One, how I managed to have any friends, and two, the mystery of how I'm getting married in, like, three weeks. Um, Listen, you found your match. Yeah. <laughs> Jillian just puts her fingers in her ears. I get it. Also a good strategy. (laughs) Julia, we're sponsored again by Skillshare this week. One of our favorite sponsors who is an online learning community with over 20,000 classes in design, business, technology, and more. And it's not just like companies that make these classes. It's real people who are really good at what they do. And I actually didn't know this for the first few weeks I was on Skillshare, but you can also become a teacher. You can, you know, be an expert in whatever you're doing. I know our listeners are creative and motivated as hell. So if you have something to teach, you can also do that on Skillshare and earn money and give back to this community. Yeah. uh, And the best part is if you get a premium membership, you get unlimited access to high quality classes uh, on must know topics. So you can improve your skills, unlock new opportunities and do the work you love. So the class that I was checking out this week, Amanda, is called Building Character. Uh, It's a three-part series for people who are interested in art about character design by this guy named Jesse Ledoux, who does character design for Disney, Nickelodeon, and Cartoon Network. As a kid who grew up watching, like, anime and, like, you know, animated stuff and also, like, reading comic books, I love character design so much. I love seeing, like, outfit designs by artists and showing the different, like, steps that create the character into what you know it to be. Um, and so this was so up my alley because I just, I love the idea that you can learn how to create interesting characters that are engaging and like just 
beautiful and can tell a story just by looking at them. That's the coolest thing to me. And Jesse's class totally does that. I love that so much. And if you want to check out that class or any of the 20,000 others that Skillshare has to offer, go to Skillshare.com slash spirits, where you can get two months of unlimited access to their premium membership for only 99 cents. That's Skillshare.com slash spirits. And let's get back to the story. So the way the way hit or myth works is these are all short monologues, personal statements written by various mythic figures. Uh, and your job is to identify who is speaking. Uh, and so I figured this would be a fun way for me to just rattle off a bunch of different folkloric, like tall tale type characters. The, the actual game itself has a bunch of different influences. So there's the tall tales element, there's various Native American mythologies, uh, and then there's also West African stuff, just to represent all the, the many ways, the many folk ways that contribute to what we conceive of as American mythic culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so for our purposes, I'm just going to read, because of our constraints about what we're talking about today, I'm just going to read from the ones that are um, folkloric, like the tall taley ones. Gotcha. Time for some competition, which Amanda and I love. I'm not feeling good about my chances here, yeah, but I'm going to try. You're probably pretty good at this point. Let's, let's try number one. Settle down, fella. Settle down. Don't get excited. You'll wake my necktie and I don't want him to bite you. I see that there tornado up and swirling round that mesa, but I'll be a varmint's bedpost if that's the scariest twister I've ever seen. I've seen dust devils 14 times the size of that little runt. Don't you worry. In 10 minutes time, I'll have this entire problem all tied up. Who am I? And I can give you, I can give you options if you want options. But Please give you... us options. I'm definitely okay. getting like cowboy lasso vibes, but I don't know who. Yeah. Was it A, Pecos Bill? B, Davy Crockett, or C, Mike Fink? Pecos Bill. Ding! Correct, Julia. It was Pecos Bill, the toughest cowboy in Texas. Pecos Bill was raised by coyotes on the open plain and only realized he was a man and not a varmint when someone pointed out that he lacked a tail. Bill went on to win a great deal of fame for his activities, lassoing a tornado and riding it all over the West till it got tired enough for him to wring out all the water, thus making the Gulf of Mexico. He wore a live (laughs) rattlesnake for a necktie, uh, and he rode a horse named Widowmaker, a horse made of lightning that ate dynamite instead of oats. I want to marry that horse. Oh my god. Can I marry that horse? I love it. You can marry that horse. That horse horse. is my son. This uh, is the future liberal. The West. You can marry that horse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one can tell me I can't. Pecos Bill was made up. Um, he was mostly collected in stories by a writer named Tex O'Reilly in the 30s. Uh, that's a Edward good name. Tex Barry. That's, that's a Harper Lee's grandfather. <laughs> he, so this dude, I want to know more about Tex O'Reilly because he was a, a mercenary. He was one of those like late 19th century soldiers of fortune that went all over the world murdering people for the sake of american empire cool uh oh yeah not a good man i don't think um probably (laughs) a a great look certainly a hero in his day but i would be very interested in reading um because before he wrote the pecos bill stories he wrote uh, a very well-regarded autobiography that brought him some prominence I'm always very interested to see what books were like bestsellers or very popular in their time because it tells you so much more about like what we what what has sort of aged into the literary canon. Right. Um, like what people were actually interested in buying and reading. 
Shall we move on to the next one? Of course. Yes, please. Okay. I'm at loggerheads with my camp cook, Sourdough Sam. He says to me, he says, Boss, we've got too many mouths to feed. We'll have to dig another reservoir to fill with Johnny Cake batter. I says, that won't be the trouble, Sam. Trouble is, we'll need to dig another hundred dozen acres of fields to grow the corn for the Johnny Cakes, and I'm not doing that till winter's over. Sam said I was stubborn as Knox, but I think he was confusing me with my little pet. Who am I? Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Good job, man. Hey. I needed to get it out before you because I needed at least one. You got it. You got it. That was what happened there. Was Paul Bunyan king of the lumberjacks? Wherever the pines grew thick in the north woods of the United States, Paul and his faithful blue ox babe were there. Bunyan ran a logging camp at the head of the Onion River in Minnesota, so they say, and amassed quite a healthy crew of men there. Paul's cook, Sourdough Sam, needed a griddle twice the size of Congress and three times as useful to cook the vloggers' flapjacks each morning. It had to sit on Tight. top of a... Thanks. That one, actually, I made up uh, because I wanted to uh, and because <laughs> I figured if it's all made up, it's all made up. I don't know if that's ethical. Uh, yeah, but it had whatever. To, Doesn't matter. It, it had to sit on top of a forest fire to heat up, and every day before breakfast, a dozen lumberjacks with sides of bacon strapped to their feet like ice skates slid around the griddle to grease it. Oh, no. Also, for the record, the uh, Sourdough Sam is the name of the uh, mascot for the San Francisco 49ers, I believe. That's amazing. Oh, sports are so good. Sports are so pure sometimes. Yeah, that um, that giant griddle thing is an element of all the, the Paul Bunyan stories going back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And possibly even before Loghead himself started collating them and, and sanitizing them although to look at it now there's it's it's not that sanitized um in that there's like a weird kind of racist joke in this original one so a lot of a lot of the stories around paul bunyan refer not only to his giant strength but to his enormous appetite and the appetites of the the men at big onion camp i will admit when you said not only his giant size and then i immediately went real dirty in my mind and i don't want to don't want to think about that no more sure i was going to say his domestic skills because (laughs) there's been an emphasis on cooking so far and i am very interested in the ways in which like frontiersmen um were expected like the the ways in which like survival skills and like domesticity you know overlap Mm -hmm. and how the like rugged independent you know, uh, cowboy or explorer or frontiersman, um, you know, is expected to be proficient in the sort of things that we now now code as like feminine and in the domestic sphere. Anyway, that's just me. I'm glad your brain went somewhere good. Well, I think the way in which they try to countermand that femininity is through outsized feats of invention. Um, there it is. And and like if we're going to cook it has to be absurd. So here's here's what we have from the loghead. Um there are two kinds of camp cooks, the baking powder bums and the sourdough stiffs. Sourdough Sam belonged to the latter school. He made everything but coffee out of sourdough. He only had one arm and one leg, the other members having been lost when his sourdough barrel blew up. Sam officiated at Tadpole River headquarters. The winter shot Gunderson took charge. After all others had failed at Big Onion Camp, Paul hired his cousin Big Joe, who came from three weeks below Quebec. This boy sure put a mean scald on the chuck. He was the only man who could make pancakes fast enough to feed the crew. He had Big Ole, the blacksmith, make him a griddle that was so big you couldn't see across it when the steam was thick. The batter, stirred in drums like concrete mixers, was poured on with cranes and spouts. 
So he continues, It used to be a big job to haul prune pits and coffee grounds away from Paul's camps. It required a big crew of men and either Babe the Blue Ox or Benny the Blue Calf to do the hauling. Finally, Paul decided it was cheaper to build new camps and move every month. Man, it is it is crazy how it's like, America, things are big here mm-hmm. and also efficient. So it in researching this episode and doing research for this episode, I, I knew about Babe the Blue Ox, right? Uh, but I didn't know about Benny the Giant Calf. I want to know everything about him. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never heard that before. I'm pretty sure that Babe is original to whatever oral myths there were. Uh, but Benny right. is like a, a mm-hmm. whole cloth invention. I think specifically because he wanted to come up with an excuse to kill a giant animal. Uh, so before you get too attached to Benny. Uh, David, it's too late. It's I'm too attached. Late. He's my son. Oh, he died. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Gluttony killed Benny. He had a mania for pancakes. And no. one cook crew of 200 <laughs> men. Uh, I'm so sorry. Same. He had a mania for pancakes, and one cook crew of 200 men was kept busy making cakes for him. One night he pawed and bellowed and threshed his tail about till the wind of it blew down what pine Paul had left standing in Dakota. At breakfast time, he broke loose, tore down the cook shanty, and began bolting pancakes. In his greed, he swallowed the red-hot stove. Indigestion set in, and nothing could save him. He died from an oh, upset no. tummy. He died from an upset tummy. That reminds me of the time that one of my uh, high school ex-boyfriends invited me to the all-you-could-eat pancakes at uh, Uh IHOP after I'd already eaten breakfast. Early in your courtship. It was towards the end, actually. That was one of the the nails in the coffin. And it was not a fun time because it was, they decided we're going to have an all-you-can-eat pancake contest and the person who loses has to pay for everyone's pancakes. I'm like, I've already eaten and I'm not going to lose because I'm poor. And so I ended up throwing up in a uh, IHOP bathroom. So that was fun. The things we do for love. I, I feel Benny are better now. very hard, though. Get it. <laughs> oh, Get Benny. It, Benny. Uh, Poor so babe. Here is what Been became there. of Benny. Uh, what oh, disposition no. was made of his body is a matter of dispute. One old-timer claims that the outfit he works for bought a hind quarter of the carcass in 1857 and made corned beef of it. He thinks they still have several carloads left. Another authority states that the body of Benny was dragged to a safe distance from the North Dakota camp and buried. When the earth was shoveled back, it made a mound that formed the Black Hills in South Dakota. All right. I like that one better. That's kind of sweet. But also, who are these authorities? Can we stop and interrogate that for just a second? Nope. (laughs) No. No, we can't. Uh, Don't worry. It's America. It's big. Keep going. There's more. And then I was reading along, and then just in the middle of this uh, this book of stories, Loghead just jumps in with a promotional pitch for the hardwoods uh, harvested and sold by the lumber company. Yikes. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Yikes. Oh, 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 this is sort of related um, to fake lore and also um, to your recent episode about Kalevala. So I was reading this book by folklorist Alan Dundas. And it references a previous Spirits episode about the Kalevala. He wrote that there are some Finnish folklorists, and this would have been early 20th century through the mid-century, that argued that, um, what's his name, Elias Landrat, or Lönnrat, mm-hmm. was a fake lorist. Uh, and I know that Elena covered this a little bit in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they claimed that he'd invented a lot of the Kalevala that he claimed to be original oral tradition. Right. 
The Finnish folklorist Marti Havio wrote, and I don't really know how to say names in Finnish, so I apologize, um, but he wrote in 1954, quote, Kalevala is not regular folklore, but the Finnish people, including many intellectuals, preferred instead to believe that the Kalevala was a genuine folk epic, that it was the forces of romanticism and nationalism that propelled this narrative into the popular consciousness. Yeah, Elena mentioned that as well, especially mm -hmm. in a time of uh, kind of Russian occupation and sort of a, a conscientiousness about like wanting to be Finnish and wanting to figure out what that means. Um, right. A story that was like close enough, uh, you yeah. know, and well-timed and well-publicized, uh, you know, really hit home. I believe Elena referred to it as Finnish uh, fan fiction. Right. The late 19th century was a very interesting time for national myths and, you know, national symbols. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure that we've really fully reckoned with the way that these icons that we dug up of ourselves, you know, in the, in the 1850s through the seventies, how those metastasized into nationalistic forces that resulted in the, the world wars. Um, I don't know. I think about that a lot. Like I think about, um, the, the national projects of the late 19th century in central Europe that created Germany and then kind of created like a German ethnostate and gave Nazism something to like grab onto and say like, this is ours and this is our heritage. Yeah, I, I just think that national myths can be very dangerous. Yeah, I, I can agree with that yeah, from and a I, historical perspective. Yeah. And I think underlines the importance of the stories we tell each other, whether it's the stuff that we choose to propagate or the stories that we consume that allow us to kind of think about ourselves and our identities and what an adult version of the little maelstrom of feelings that like an 11 or 12 year old you know self might be um it it really has power and they're you know people should be conscious about the kinds of myths that they you know give life to yeah and this kind of goes back to what dorson was saying and what julia i think you were saying too is that this is why it's important for us to interrogate the origins of our stories sure so that we 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 don't take poison along with the oatmeal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I've reached the end of my immediately relevant fake lore uh, entries in the hit or myth game, but I have a couple more. Mm -hmm. I want to see if you've heard of them. Ooh, go for it. So there's Joe yeah. Magarach, um, which I would say Magarach, but it's M-A-G-A-R-A-C. Uh, and that's fake lore. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that one. No. Uh I don't think so. So he is the patron saint of steel workers. This, this, <laughs> Name, the story first appeared in print in a Scribner's Magazine article in 1931. Um, there is there is a possibility that the author that, quote unquote, like first reported, I was going to say invented, but that first reported the existence of the story. Um, he might have just been like getting dunked on by some Croatian-American steelworkers in Pittsburgh. Yes! Um, My best, because, the best guys. The best! Because Magarach means jackass in Serbo-Croatian. <laughs> oh my god whose great-grandfathers were steelworkers that did this shit. Right? I know you are listening. It's so good. Uh, so I the love things, it. So when when you think of Joe Magarach, um, imagine basically Colossus from the X-Men. Um, All right. He's made of steel. My favorite. Uh, he was okay. born in an ore mine. He works 24 hours a day. He saves people from falling crucibles. Um, the legend goes that he was so sad when the, um, the steel mills started to close that he melted himself down just to give everyone one last thing to do with the Bessemer <gasps> process. No! Oh, that's so 
sad. Gimme tree golem bullshit. No. No. But again, like you have to interrogate the the values of that story. Like, why is it so great that a steel worker works twenty four hours a day? That's terrible. It's not. That's that's a it's an industry taking advantage of its workers, but also that's still sad and I, I feel bad for right. him. I know. Uh, Julia, I'm glad you shared this with me because I just any object that is anthropomorphized or any like, you know, thing with a personality I'm, I'm immediately like, my friend, my son, and I get very sad when it goes away. So My sweet child. This is yeah. why your boy David can't watch the Brave Little Toaster ever again. Oh, don't bring uh, up also, that name in my house. Mm, <laughs> no. We have a lot of feelings about Brave Little Toaster. Right <laughs> we now. sure do. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry to keep introducing you to these adorable characters and then murdering them. Why? You know, Why? I, I asked myself that question a lot also. <laughs> um, here's one, and he's not going to die. Uh, have you heard of Alfred Bulltop Stormalong? No, but I no. love his name. Yeah, so that's that's um, like a Cape Cod story. When he was born, he so when he was, he wasn't born so much as he washed ashore. And when he washed yes. ashore, he was already three Same. fathoms tall. <laughs> so about 18 feet. Also me. Uh, he had I was a, a long baby, y'all. <laughs> I became a long adult. <laughs> what, were you born when you were two? No, I was just very long. Just long and they were baby. like, wow. Wow, this is... It was It was one of those Athena uh, popping out of Zeus's forehead sure. incidences, but it was Amanda. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, wow, this baby can read, and also she's going to be six feet tall. And it's true. And the world was never the same. <laughs> anyway, please tell us the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Stormalong had a ship, uh, a three-master called the Tuscarora, uh, and it was so tall that it had a hinged mast. Um because he would need to yank on the hinge so that the the top mast wouldn't scrape the moon as he went by. Oh, and I, I love don't that. I don't believe there is any kind of like fate of Alfred Bulltop Stormalong. He had a an enmity with a kraken, but I'm not sure if he ever defeated the kraken, and I don't think the kraken ever got him. Who hasn't had a beef with a kraken? He's my favorite boy, though. Just, I love just that. Just my favorite boy. I love that, and I I love the like physical presence of the sun and moon in folklore. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm like super fascinated by the study of space. Um, but this kind of earlier human idea of like that uh, being just a thing that is reachable physically is it just like gets at some part of me. I love it. There are also the, the real ones that have been embellished. Uh, and I don't have a ton to say about them, uh, except that I found a, a bit from, do you know about Mike Fink, the Mississippi Boatman? No. No. Oh man. So so I think he's one of those people where the myth possibly started with him like telling stories about himself. He was just like a, a legendary brawler and liar um and marksman. Uh and he was like famous for being really good at fighting and also for being very good at navigating keelboats down the Mississippi. Um, according to him, though. According to him, but Which also it... according to contemporary reports. All right. From what I understand, that's a hell of a river to navigate. Yeah. So. I mean, these are these are Mark Twain-type stories. Like, we're talking we're talking contemporary with him. According to Wikipedia, this, this is some kind of transcript of an actual boast of his. Uh, it goes like this. <clears throat> I'm a salt river roarer. I'm a ring-tailed squealer. I'm a regular screamer from the old Mississippi. Whoop! 
I'm the very infant that refused his milk before its eyes were open and called out for a bottle of old rye. I love the women and I'm chock full of fight. I'm half wild horse and half cockeyed alligator, and the rest of me is crooked snags and red-hot snapping turtle. I can hit like fourth-proof lightning, and every lick I make in the woods lets in an acre of sunshine. I can outrun, outjump, outshoot, outbrag, outdrink, and outfight, rough and tumble, no holds barred, any man on both sides of the river, from Pittsburgh to New Orleans and back again to St. Louis. Come on, you flatters, you bargers, you milk-white mechanics, and see how tough I am to chaw. I ain't had a fight for two days, and I'm spiling for exercise. Cock-a-doodle-doo. He sounds like he's cutting a promo right before WrestleMania. Uh He sounds like he is a uh, late 1980s rapper, and I love it. (laughs) That may just be my malign influence, though. Oh, yeah. I mean... Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I, I, that is another just like American thing is like, fuck you. I'm great. And obviously destructive in the larger course of society and the world very mm-hmm. often. But I also very much appreciate it. And man, there's just so, so much Americanism and Americana in these myths. Um, and I'm sure that there are listeners out there who have studied this kind of thing or who are hobbyists and read a lot about um, Americana and American myth-making. So I would love to have your recommendations about, like, stories and articles. Um, I'm going to go on on JSTOR myself later on and try to look up up some things because, again, like, especially this day and age, it's, you know, it's a a fraught thing to be um, an American, especially a white American, and it is easy to just kind of like disconnect with that whole shebang right but um there are also real ways in which like i don't know our legacy is complicated and our identity is complicated and a lot of the stuff that we bring to the modern world um is stuff that our ancestors like chose for us as a national identity and so digging more into that i think is only going to be helpful for deciding how we want to shape that identity going forward also i want a big blue cow same. I got permission from Jillian to tell you about this last part. Um, Yay. So, so I'm talking about my my fiance, my wife to be, um, who may actually Ooh. be my wife by the time this airs. So, woo! I was gonna she say probably she will be my wife, Jillian. Um, her her mother died a couple of years ago, and Barbara had this absolutely wild life um, that like beggars belief. She was a brain surgeon. She was a pilot. She was an athlete. She broke horses for the racetrack. And I didn't really get to know her that well before she died. Uh, And the Barbara that I met was not that Barbara. And so Jillian and I started talking about, like, well, what's the version of your mother that we want to develop for when we have kids? There are a lot of stories about Barbara that are incredible and true. And I think that there are... They're so incredible that I started making tall tales about Jillian's mom. Um, mm-hmm. Like the Rio Grande once got too fresh with Barbara, so she slapped it. And that's why the river's so windy. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a young girl, she once outthought a computer. And it was one of those big experimental ones from the 60s that took up an entire room. <laughs> and the computer was so embarrassed that it shrank in on itself. And that's why your phone can fit in your pocket today. These are so delightful. I want to cry. So if y'all can think of uh, good good myths that I can make up about my, my late mother-in-law, uh, let me know. Because, I mean, the, the actual person herself was pretty astounding. I mean, those uh, tales sound like the only way to really get at 
the reality of what she was like. Right. Because, I mean, that's why, like, impressionism is a thing. That's why poetry is a thing. I mean, she was a flight surgeon in, like, the 60s and 70s when there were no women in that field, you know? Yeah. It's incredible. And, like, saying that is remarkable, but feeling it? And, and like evoking the sense of what it was like to talk to her and think of her and like reckon with her, you know, individuality and her life, you know, doesn't have to be limited to the details of her biography. Right. Thank That's you. What I think. I'm glad you understand that. That's so beautiful. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that with us, David, and all of the other fake lore that you brought to the table, which in some ways is the, the truest, uh, the truest kind of story we have to tell about ourselves. Print the legend. uh david why don't you plug your stuff before we head out secrets crimes and audio tape uh which is another anthology uh, audio fiction program that one's from wondery um we are currently between seasons but you know feel free to make some noise on the internet and say hey where's that second season wouldn't mind that uh i also work (laughs) for khan academy which is a free online educational nonprofit. Our mission is to bring a free world-class education to anyone, anywhere. Uh, And so if you want to start teaching yourself U.S. history or calculus or chemistry or anything, um, or donate to our our nonprofit, visit khanacademy.org. Try it in another language. You'll be shocked and delighted to see how much stuff there is on there. And oh, I, I built the grammar section if you want to see that. Aww. That's awesome. Yeah. And in addition to uh, making some great stuff and helping some great missions, you are, uh, in my humble opinion, one of the uh, real community leaders in podcasts oh, and audio today. Yeah. Thank you so and much. I am, uh, I'm grateful to be your friend. I am grateful to be your friend. Aww. This does my heart That's good. It. Well, uh, remember, listeners, wherever you are and however big your pancakes, you just got to stay creepy and stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.